Now, we tend to think that Silicon Valley and its ability to create the tools of the future began with Steve Jobs. But that's not quite the case. Well before Jobs, there was Buckminster Fuller, an American futurist and disruptor who was born in 1895 and died in 1983. Now, in his lifetime, Fuller influenced a whole generation of thinking around architecture, technology, startups, how to change the world. Dressed in his trademark black suit, Bucky, as he was often known, presented himself as something of a prophet and was well known for all sorts of inventions, including the Dymaxion car, the Wichita house and the geodesic dome. Now, Fuller's unusual life is now the subject of a new biography by the author Alec Neville Lee. And the book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller, examines the brilliant but somewhat troubling life of a genius who at one point was the most famous man in America. Welcome to LNL, Alec. Uh, thanks, Kylie. It's great to be here. Now, first, tell us a bit about Buckminster's life. Actually, I can't get around that name. Why was he called Buckminster? That was an old family name. I mean, one of the first things you learn about Fuller is that uh, he came from a uh, an older family in New England um, that had been around for a long time. He was the fifth, uh, you know, um, son in his family to go to Harvard. So, you know, the 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 name is a reflection of the fact that he came from this fairly privileged background. So it spe- speaks to his privilege, I guess, his connections as well. And he was he was growing up in a moment when science and technology was the new frontier in the American imagination. Is that right? Uh, Yes. I mean, one reason that I find Fuller so interesting is that if you were to have encountered him for the first time, let's say in like the late 60s or early 70s, when he kind of, you know, becomes more of a a famous countercultural figure, he he seems to come out of nowhere. Um, But if you go back and look at his earlier life and career, you see that he really does emerge from this particular moment, you know, in the early 20th century, when, you know, things like aviation and uh, military design and housing were becoming, um, you know, topics of immense interest to people. And he is born at just the right time to kind of uh, take advantage of that interest um, and kind of leverage it to build his own career. So how did he think of himself in career terms? I mean, he, ne- he never really embraced the idea that he was just just an architect or just an inventor. I mean, h- how did he, he see himself in his role? So, you know, I like to think of uh, Fuller almost as the prototype of the modern startup founder. And like a lot of startup founders, what he does is he pivots. He he moves from one idea to another. And you see this especially early on in his career where, you know, at first he's developing a, a house that can be manufactured in a factory. And then later on, he's making a car or a prefab bathroom and later the dome. And you kind of ask yourself, what do all these things have in common? But they really do come out of a single philosophy, uh, which essentially is about using design and technology uh, to make, uh, you know, life more efficient. And, you know, this is very consistent. You know, he has, um, you know, starting in the early 20s, you know, his approach to, you know, solving problems um, is essentially fixed. And he's going to pursue that approach for the next 50 years. And it really comes down to, you know, trying to find novel ways of using materials, of 
different kinds of uh, inventions and, and devices uh, that will allow people to live more efficiently and, um, and you know, what he sees as like enhancing um, the freedom of, of the individual to, to you know, live the life that they want. It's not only about efficiency, though, is it? You, you write eloquently about um, you know these other events that changed the course of his life. One of them being uh, the death of his daughter Alexandra. What happened to her, and how did it influence him? So his daughter uh, Alexandra died when she was four years old in 1922, and you know, to, to me, this is almost like the turning point in Fuller's life. Because earlier I mentioned that he came from um, a fairly privileged New England background. And up to that point, you know, he was pursuing, you know, what seemed like a fairly conventional life. You know, he had a, you know, a career, he was working uh, in different industries. um, And, you know, he sort of, his his life track seemed very fixed. And then after his daughter dies, it kind of creates this break in his life. And one of the first things he does is he starts to work for his father-in-law to create a new kind of um, essentially like, like a housing material. Uh, and, you know, this is kind of what sets him into the world of architecture and the world of being an entrepreneur. And, you know, he, he kind of sentimentally traces a lot of his concerns back to his daughter's death. You know, he says that he feels like her health issues, because she died, you know, of um, complications that originated with the Spanish flu, uh, you know, that he he kind of blames uh, poor housing and poor living conditions for, you know, the issues that caused her death. Which is, you know, possibly true, but also, you know, it's sort of a moment that frees him to break away from the the life, the career path that he has kind of been assigned by his social position to pursue something, you know, much more individual and much stranger in some ways. Now he didn't find fame, did he, until he was in his fifties, and that was with the geodesic dome, uh, the dome, I guess, that I always think of in terms of the Eden Project in Cornwall. If anyone's looking for a kind of an image uh, to remind themselves of what that is, explain it to me though in kind of physical terms. What exactly is a geodesic dome? So, um, I mean, whenever I speak to people about Fuller and they aren't sure who he is, I usually refer to um, Epcot Center at Disney World. So this, you know, geodesic uh, sphere called Spaceship Earth is essentially um, a homage, shall we say, to Fuller and his ideas. So, you know, the, the, the dome, basically, it's a hemispherical structure um, that can be made of any kind of uh, material. You know, it can be made of metal or plastic or plywood or cardboard. Um, and it's essentially a, a hemisphere that is triangulated. So you can imagine that like a scaffold. Many of us played on these things uh, on playgrounds, you know, uh, in, in grade school. And, and, you know, Fuller, you know, w- wasn't the first person to come up with the idea, but he was the first person to sort of see its potential, um, not just because it could be applied to all kinds of uh, structures that could be used for tents, it could be used for pavilions, for factories, um, you know, for, for communes that, you know, the hippies built in the 60s, uh, but also as sort of this um, very charismatic object, right? It was a it was a structure that looked futuristic. You know, people saw this triangulated framework and they said, wow, this looks like science fiction. And, you know, the funny thing is that, you know, the, the, the dome looked really futuristic, but it could be built for almost nothing. You know, he could not afford at that point in his career to start a, a huge company to, to build, you know, the prefab house of his dreams. But, you know, to build a dome, all he needed was some materials from a hardware store and some college kids and they could put up a dome 
in the course of a couple of weeks. And so for Fuller, you know, at this point in his life, you know, that's a very attractive um, uh, idea. Like instead of having to start a company, he can just sort of develop the dome in this very informal, individual way by going to colleges and giving lectures and having students come up with these ideas that he then takes to the next college on his list. And so that's kind of a, a, a big turning point for him, you know, as a public figure, because he sees the dome as kind of this um, incredibly compelling structure that he can use to advance his uh, other objectives. I guess it also it marks him as an affordable housing advocate, doesn't it, really, in the sense that it's about being able to use all kinds of materials, being able to potentially do it yourself without expertise. Uh, it's a kind of an accessible uh, kind of shelter. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, you know, Fuller is talking about housing issues starting in the late 20s. And his original idea, as I think I mentioned, is a house that could be built in a factory. And it would require, you know, this massive industrial operation to to realize. And he, he never really managed to do it. He tried for, for 20 years to, you know, build this, uh, you know, prefab house. And the dome, as you point out, you know, originally he was trying to sell it to the military and trying to sell it to the U.S. government and, you know, get, get contracts with uh, industry and, and, you know, those kinds of clients. Then later on, around the mid-60s, it kind of gets adopted by the hippies. And it kind of becomes this uh, vernacular structure that people can build, as you say, you know, based on, you know, like some very simple plans and some tables of numbers. And so, you know, around that time, as he gets um, much more famous and much more popular in the, the counterculture, the dome kind of escapes from his control and it starts to mutate and take on all these, you know, different forms that I don't think he ever saw coming. I guess uh, as a scientist too and a thinker, there is geometry at its heart and that was something that we know that he was fascinated by. Yes. Yeah, so, so Fuller, you know, is, is sort of like a self-taught, um, uh, you know, um, I, I wouldn't call him a mathematician, but he is, you know, as you say, really intrigued by geometry and he is experimenting with, uh, you know, uh, constructions made of um, clusters of spheres and, um, you know, polyhedra, you know, I would say from the, the mid-30s onward. And um, it's, it's funny because, like, you know, to him, like, he is... Um, Unable to realize these um, ambitious designs for houses or cars, you know, that he's pursuing early on. But, you know, geometry is something that he can kind of develop on his own. And so whenever he has setbacks in his business uh, career, he kind of falls back on geometry because you can work on these ideas at home. You know, he, he buys materials, you know, like sticks and string and is building these models at his kitchen table. And the dome kind of comes out of this almost inadvertently. You know, he is not looking for the dome, but he kind of stumbles across it and realizes that it can be, you know, this really useful structure. And then later on, you know, after the dome kind of escapes from his control, as I said, he goes back to pure geometry and he starts to think of uh, geometry not just as a way to build these structures, but also a way to describe how the universe works. And so he develops this very elaborate system of geometry uh, that, that he calls synergetics, which um, is based on the triangle and not the the, the, uh, the square, and based on the tetrahedron or the triangular pyramid and not the cube. And so he builds this incredibly elaborate structure, this this geometrical philosophy, you know, based on these these concepts that kind of becomes his main. Uh, product line almost for the last two years of his life because, you know, he's no longer able to finance these big projects, but, you know, geometry, you know, he can do on his own. Now, in your book, you write about a kind of particularly delicious moment for for those of us living in this age uh, where Steve Jobs um, is hanging out with Buckminster, uh, Buckminster now a very old man, 
uh, and he turns up um, at Apple, at, at the Apple headquarters at one point, and lo and behold, there's Steve, and they, they wander around the building together. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked about this because, you know, no one until I wrote this book had really talked about that encounter. Like no one even knew it happened. But I, I was able to talk to some Apple employees and, you know, the person who actually brought Fuller there that day who, who told me about this visit. And, and the short version is that, you know, Steve Jobs is a product of the 1970s culture of um, the Bay Area in California. And, you know, at this time, one of the big influences is a book called The Whole Earth Catalog, which is sort of this uh, oversized guide to books and tools for uh, the counterculture that you know, has a huge influence on um, the people that end up founding Silicon Valley, you know, because it's about tools. It's about, you know, trying to change the world through design rather than through politics. And this is very attractive to Steve Jobs and his generation. And Fuller is kind of at the center of the catalog. He's kind of the inspiration for the catalog. And so, uh, you know, this uh, this uh, filmmaker named Taylor Barcroft, you know, who's trying to get this uh, cable series off the ground with Fuller giving Terry on current events says, oh, maybe we could just go to Apple um, and like try to shoot uh, a episode there because I, I'm pretty sure that Steve Jobs is a fan of Fuller. And so they show up one day without even an appointment. Yeah, they, they managed to kind of talk their way into the Apple offices and and, and Jobs, you know, seems uh, really pleased to meet Fuller. We don't know what they said to each other, you know, uh, unfortunately, at that meeting. Um, but what I always found really interesting is that Fuller is someone who's been talking about technology and computers for years. And after they leave, uh, you know, his friend, Barcroft, asks him what he thinks of Apple. And he says that uh, he thinks that the computer is a toy. You know, it, it, does not, it does not correspond with his idea of what computers are or what they can do. And, and so it's kind of interesting to see how... You know, people like Jobs, you know, took a lot of the concepts and the uh, metaphors that Fuller was responsible for, but ended up taking them in a direction that, you know, even Fuller himself, you know, didn't see coming. I mean, he, he lived uh, kind of a peripatetic life, didn't he? That He moved from project to project. As you said, he was looking around for clients, trying to work out where to take his designs, what direction to take them in. I mean, he lived at a time where there wasn't really much access to, for example, venture capital money, the stuff that powers Silicon Valley now. How did he fund his research and inventions? Uh, another great question. Um, so I think I've alluded to this a couple of times already. You know, Fuller had several failed ventures to build um, the car, to build different versions of his house. And, and, you know, at first he tries to pursue them using like fairly conventional means, right? And then later on, um, after the dome, you sort of see his career, you know, diverge. On the one hand, he is like looking for big clients like the government and the military. And for a while, he does earn a lot of money from things like radar enclosures, um, you know, that were used in the 50s to, to shield antennas, uh, you know, in the Arctic. Um, they were there to look for signs of a Soviet air attack. Um, and so some of those applications ended up being pretty, pretty useful. But, you know, after a while, you know, those patents lapse and the government moves on to other ideas and other designs. And Fuller kind of falls back on what I mentioned earlier, you know, this interesting arrangement he has with colleges where students are there to build and design these domes and other other concepts. And what I find really interesting is that, you know, after a certain point, Fuller is not earning a lot of money from patent at all. You know, he, he's not someone who is um, reaping the, the benefits of his ideas in the way you think of, you know, someone in Silicon Valley doing today. What he does and is Elon he earns Musk, money by lecturing. For example. 
Yeah, and, and and Fuller, you know, doesn't really have access to that kind of capital, and so what he does is he just, you know, travels the world giving talks and lectures. You know, he is on the road, as you mentioned, almost constantly, and, and you know, people are like sometimes amazed by the fact that he gave you know hundreds of talks every year. But the reason is that you know he wanted to fund research, he wanted to have a staff that could work on these designs for him, and the only way he could finance that operation was himself. He he had to kind of become this traveling you know show uh, that you know he could use to raise money to pursue these ideas. I mean, he had some pretty wacky ideas. Can you tell us about the Dymaxion car, which looks like, I guess, what you would have might have imagined the space age would look like back in the 30s and 40s? So um, it's this interesting period where in like 1933, Fuller starts to work on a car. And at first I didn't understand why he would, you know, uh, spend time on this idea when his his major interest was housing. But then I realized that for him, you know, the car was a piece of the house that could drive off on a it was it was sort of like a front porch on wheels, and so he had this vision of, you know, basically not be tied down to existing cities or infrastructure. And part of that vision required a car, required a vehicle that you could use to to get around. For him, you know, this was not just a car; it was a vehicle that could potentially fly. He he sort of saw this this is very like kind of like a Buck Rogers, uh, you know, looking. Um, device or, or, or design for a car that would have wings and, you know, could take off. And, you know, obviously he could not actually realize this. He, he was able to like only work on the, the the car version, but you look at it and you can see the traces of that original conception because it has the, the teardrop shape that is, you know, very slimed. It has only three wheels, you know, two front, one in back. It has, you know, periscope and a, a rear view mirror. You know, it's, it's like very interesting design. And the, the short version about what happened to the car is that it was involved in an accident in Chicago in October of uh, 1933, and the driver was killed. And Fuller always blamed a second car that he claimed was trying to race the Damaxian car and crashed into it and caused the car to turn over. But, you know, I discovered, if you look back at the actual records, look at the quest and look at his own papers, there was another car involved uh, in any meaningful way. You know, the Damaxian car rolled over this was clearly a design flaw. These were issues that I think were unfortunately caused by Fuller's vision of the car as a flying machine, which made it less stable as a car itself. Alec, obviously, I mean, the more we talk, the more I realise there are so many categories that Buckminster Fuller's lives, life falls into, uh, and he's very difficult to pigeonhole. How, how do you think he should be remembered? Um, I mean, I, I do think that he's a very um, instructive figure. You know, I, I mentioned him as sort of the prototype of the startup founder. And I do think that if you were a young person today trying to make change, trying to start a company or to make an impact, you know, his life is almost an instruction manual for how to motivate people and how to get things started. I, I do think that some of the designs themselves were flawed. And I do think that, you know, I, I don't agree with Fuller in every respect. I think some of his ideas are great. Others are less less interesting. But, you know, the, the fact that he was able to do so much in the course of his career with the, you know, fairly resources he had, especially, you know, toward the end, to me is astonishing. And I think that anyone who wants to kind of have that kind of career or is skeptical of these kinds of figures, you know, could actually learn a lot by looking at Fuller's life. Alec, thank you so much for talking us through all those facets of him. It's fascinating. It's a fabulous book. It tells us a lot, as you say, about um, the imagination and how it applies in our uh, everyday lives now, how things change. That was Alec Neville-Lee, author of Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. 
It's published by HarperCollins. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.